This morning we have an opportunity to do something that until the first service I don't think I have ever been able to do before. I get the opportunity to preach from what is now declared officially the favorite Bible story of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church. So if you'll open your Bibles to John chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 15 through 21 as Jesus walks on the water. Now, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, which is the majority of you who are here, it's an inside joke, as inside jokes are always a very, very bad idea when you're gathered. But last night, as Camper mentioned in our announcement time, we had our spaghetti supper, a fundraiser for our youth. Part of the entertainment was a family feud between some of the elders and some of our ministry leaders. One of the questions that was asked of uh, many people that are regular attenders of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church and 70 responders responded with their favorite Bible stories, the number one story was the one we get to consider this morning. And so that's a new one for me. I've never had people vote on the text before I preach on it. But I assume that one, you will have great attention to this, and two, I guess the pressure is also on for me. So anyway, uh, so to make sure that it continues to hold that number one ranking. Uh, our reading again, Matthew, uh, excuse me, John chapter 6, verse 16 through 21. Hear the word of our God. When evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going, the word of our God. Let's go to our God and pray that he would bless us through it this morning. Our Father, as we come and have committed ourselves to your word, we continue to offer you worship, for you are worthy to receive the praise we've offered through song and through prayer and even through the confession of our faith. But even now, as we come and give you ear, that we would listen for your voice to seek your wisdom, to apply it to our lives, we honor you as we come predisposed to do what you tell us to do and to become what you have ordained that we would become. And so while we are blessed by this word, we also honor you through it by our commitment to listen, to do, and to honor you. A reminder that you are at work within us. We can never outgive you. And so while we do give you honor and worship, we are blessed as our souls are nourished through this word that you have given us of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in him that we pray. Amen. The name Stephen Callahan is probably not familiar to most of you who are here today. But there was a brief time when his name was almost a household name. In January of 1982, Callahan set out to circumnavigate the North Atlantic in his self-made 21-foot sailboat. Things went well to start, but one week into his journey, uh, things took a turn. His boat was wrecked, and he was set adrift. Now, listen to Callahan's own words. When I was 29, I sailed alone across the Atlantic. 
I'd been dreaming of doing this since I was 12, and the crossing was exhilarating. On the return journey, the first week was calm, and when a gale started, I wasn't too concerned. I knew the boat, and I'd been through much worse. Late that night, a week into the return journey, something, probably a whale or a large shark, smashed into the boat with a deafening bang, creating a hole in the hull. I woke up in my bunk, water thundering over me. Judging by the level it was coming in, I knew she was sinking fast. I felt an odd mixture of sensations, fear, panic, even slight amusement at the fact that there was a camera attached to the back of the boat taking these dramatic shots of the storm and of my sinking boat that no one would ever see. I started to pack my life raft, but realized that I'd have to dive down into the cabin if I wanted to get essential survival items, water, food, flares, a spear gun, and a sleeping bag. The boat was almost completely submerged, but I held my breath and went under again and again. I remember the water below seemed so peaceful compared with the sea raging outside. It felt like entering a watery tomb. That night I huddled under a canopy of my six-foot circular raft with waves beating the sides, constantly bailing out water with an old tin can. I knew I was totally alone. I was now adrift in the middle of the Atlantic, 800 miles west of the Canaries, but heading in the opposite direction. All I had was a little food and enough water for a few days. Callahan then, having his ship, his boat been wrecked, sitting in his rubber six-foot raft, drifted in the Atlantic for the next 76 days before he was rescued, making him one of the longest uh, drifting journeys to survive in history. And his story is chronicled in a book called Adrift, 76 Days Lost at Sea, which I, I picked up recently. And I found it interesting because it not only does it record the, his story, but taken from the journal he kept while he was afloat for those 76 days, it records his emotions of loneliness and fear and despair and resignation that he went through. And so all in all, it's a fascinating story. His book was on the New York Times bestsellers list for 36 weeks in the middle 80s. And when he had been rescued, people were very well aware of him. He was on the news on a regular basis. And so it's a tremendous story of adventure, potential disaster, and yet uh, of survival. Now, I, I recognize that most of us are never going to have an adventure quite like Stephen Callahan. Most of us are par far too sensible to even to take side out and do what he was going to do. And those of you who are not that sensible, well, at least maybe you'll stay a little bit closer to home and, um, and, and you won't have that. But we don't have to be world-class adventurers or tackle the Atlantic Ocean in order to recognize that even life has challenges in itself. All of us have come to realize that life itself is not smooth sailing. That from time to time, every one of us faces storms in our lives. Some of them come very suddenly and may be very harsh, very abrupt, and take us by surprise. 
Others of them are recurring. They seem to come at some periodic intervals, or we've at least seen these storms before, and they just never seem to go away. They come at different ferocities, some that are so intense we're certain that they're going to do us in. Others are mere inconveniences, annoyances that we wish that we didn't have to deal with, but nevertheless, we're quite sure that we are going to survive. But the reality is that we all recognize, if we look at our own lives and we look at life as it's, uh, as it's lived out in this world, knowing that hardship is guaranteed for all of us. As Longfellow said, into every life a little rain must fall. Now, the passage that we have before us, your favorite, your official favorite, it speaks to us of the times that we're facing storms in our lives. And it points us to the one who is our refuge and our salvation. And as we've been doing, we're going to work our way through the passage. We'll break it up into kind of three different scenes here. The first scene will be the setting sail. The next scene will be the storming seas. And then the last one will be our sovereign savior. And so we begin with setting sail because that's where John begins in verse 16. John says this, when the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into the boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. Seems pretty straightforward. And if all we had was John's record, we might be inclined to look at this passage, think a little bit, and wonder if the disciples had just abandoned Jesus, either in direct disobedience or they had just tired of following him. Perhaps he had disappointed them in some way because all we're told is they got in the boat and they sailed off. But we do have other accounts. Both Matthew and Mark also record this very same instance. Both Matthew and Mark record for us that there was more detail than what John is recording. John certainly is not wrong. This is exactly what happened. But there's more to this story. And what both Matthew and Mark record for us is that what Jesus did is that he, took, he told his disciples to get in the boat. The word is he compelled them to get in the boat and to sail to the other side. And the intensity of the word that is being used there wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't permission. He told them, which gives the, and compel means that they must have been pushing back, saying, no, we want to stay with you. And he's saying, no, you get in the boat. You need to get in the boat. You need to sail off. You can imagine that even as they're getting in the boat and are in the boat, it's Jesus that takes his foot and kind of shoves the boat off into the water because he was compelled. It was, he was, that was his almost a command. It was, he, he's the one that sent them off. Then Matthew and Mark record Then he turned to the crowds and he dispensed to the crowds, told them all, go home. Then he himself went up onto the mountaintop where he would spend some time praying. Now, it's easy for us to understand why Jesus wanted to get up on the mountainside and pray. If you remember the reason why they crossed the water to where they were in the first place is they were trying to get away from the crowds. They had been ministering for so long with an incredible intensity and incredible fruitfulness that one of the gospel writers records they were so busy they didn't have time to even stop and eat. And so the whole purpose of coming across the water in the first place was to recharge their batteries, spend some time, refresh, and prepare for their ongoing ministry. And yet people had followed them. Jesus, we're told, having compassion on the crowds that he saw coming because they were like sheep without a shepherd, he put on a mini-conference. 
And then as dinner time came, he realized these people were far away from anything that they would be able to eat, and walk home would be difficult uh, for them, especially on, uh, on empty stomachs. And so he fed them in what is known as the, the feeding of the 5,000, when the reality is it would have been more like 20,000 people, because the 5,000 only refers to the heads of households. And so it'd be easy to think about that and say, of course he's still tired. He was trying to get away to rest, and then he put in an incredibly difficult full day of work, plus capped it off with a miracle. No wonder he wants to withdraw. But then that leaves us wondering then, why is he sending the disciples away, and why does the crowd need to leave? Why can't he just kind of find some place himself and leave everybody else be? Why is he separating himself so much? In order, in order to answer that question, we need to go back and look at the previous two verses, in verses 14 and 15 of John chapter 6. In those verses, John records it this way. When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, the feeding of the, the masses, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so John only records Jesus kind of withdrawing and the disciples leaving, but doesn't put the connectors together for us. And so the scene is this, is Jesus having just performed the miracle, the people figuring out that this was an incredible miracle, they were responding with an incredible intensity to make him their king. Jesus wasn't willing to accept their allegiance or even their adoration under those circumstances. It seems peculiar to us because they were recognizing who he is. This must be the prophet who's come. In other words, and Jesus says, I've come so that you can know the Father. They were going to make him king, and he is the king of all kings, and he was the king. He the, is, is the Lord of all lords. And so we would wonder why then is he rejecting their recognition, inadequate as it may be, of who he is and their commitment to follow him. And the answer to that question is because their commitment was not only inadequate, but it was tremendously flawed. You see, they wanted him to be their political leader and their religious leader without any hint of the sacrifice that he must make of himself on their behalf or our behalf. Nor was part of their condition of following him any sacrifice that we must make in order to have part of him. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. If you want to die, if you want to follow me, then you must die to yourself and trust in me. Those are clearly words that say that there's a cost and they wanted him to be their leader without cost. And Jesus says, I will not be your prophet and I will not be your king without the cross. This is an incredible prophetic message to the evangelical church of America today. Because we may look at the story, we may even love the story, but we resonate with the crowds far more than with Jesus Christ himself. Think about even the most recent elections and people and their voting and the campaign promises. What we all want, regardless of party, is to have political leaders who will say to us, 
don't worry, I will give you your best possible life and you won't have to pay for it. That's both parties. And even if it's not political, even in every evangelical, most evangelical pulpits today, we are told by sociologists, not churches that deny the scriptures of the reality of Jesus Christ, churches that would uphold the significance and the deity of Christ and claim a, a high view of the word. We are told by sociologists that what will be proclaimed from most of those pulpits would be better described as moralistic, therapeutic deism than it would be the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, what is proclaimed is, have your best life now and here's what you need to do to have it. Cling to these promises of God and your problems will go away. Rather than the significance of Christ who has given himself for our sake. We as a culture, we as an evangelical culture are far more prone to embrace anything that has God's name attached to it and makes us feel good and tell everybody they need to take part of it no matter how blasphemous it may be than to seek the riches of Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel. We are as subject to the temptation as the people who were there that day. But we need to understand that Jesus' reaction to a people who want to claim him as king, as a religious and political leader, is to send them packing. Because what Jesus is declaring to us through his actions as well as through his message here is really very well summarized by John Stott who declared that there is no Christianity without the cross. And if the cross is not central to our religion, then ours is not the religion of Jesus Christ. The disciples were sent across the sea. Jesus was spending time praying with fellowship with God. Not only was he recharging his batteries, I suspect that he was processing in his flesh all the disappointment that he was feeling as people saying the right things, doing the right things for all of the wrong reasons and belittling the gift that is theirs in God. So now we see after the disciples are sent on, we move to the second part, the stormy seas, which we begin in the, the middle of verse 17. It was now dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And the sign we see in, in verse 19, the disciples had rowed, uh, rowed, uh, had rowed about three or, or four miles, which is about halfway across. They'd been rowing for hours and yet had only made it halfway because apparently a sudden storm had burst upon them. And apparently such storms are, are not uncommon in the Sea of Galilee. A.B. Bruce, who has the classic um, book titled The Training of the Twelve, he writes this about the disciples' experience. The Sea of Galilee, though but a small sheet of water, some 13 miles long by six broad, is liable to be visited by sharp, sudden squalls, probably due to its situation. It lies in a deep hollow of volcanic origin, bounded on either side by steep ranges of hills rising above the water level from 1,000 to 2,000 feet. The difference of temperature at the top and the bottom of these hills is very considerable. 
Up on the tablelands above, the air is cool and bracing, but down at the margin of the lake, which lies 700 feet below the level of the ocean, the climate is tropical. The storms caused by this inequality of temperature are tropical in violence. They come sweeping down the ravines upon the water, and in a moment, the lake, calm as glass before, becomes from end to end white with foam, while the waves rise into the air in columns of spray. Other Bible scholars tell us that these storms are, are so intense that even boats that are out there today, power boats, significant advancements in technology, they are required to stay on the side until the storms pass, or if they're on the lake when the storm hits, they're required to head to some cove, some shelter on, on the beaches. Because even with the power boats today, they're not able to withstand the intensity of these tropical storms that just all of a sudden crop up on the Sea of Galilee. And so if the power boats of today can't withstand it, then just imagine what it would have been like to be made in a, in a wooden boat, um, primitive sails and rowing in the time of our disciples. So our disciples had been shoved into the water, told to go, and they were making their crossing. Apparently it was clear when they left because no fisherman is going to take off into the storm. And we don't have any hint from any of the recordings that they resisted for the purposes of their own safety. So they were sailing until the storm hit. When the winds started coming and the sails were not helpful, they began rowing, 12 men, most of whom were fishermen themselves, very accomplished on the sea. And after hours and hours of rowing, they could only make it halfway across. And the amount of time, the, the distance that it says that they rowed also indicates, as some scholars would say, is that the destination they were heading to, the winds had knocked them off course, and now they were headed towards the widest part that was roughly six miles across, and they were only about halfway through. Now, as we consider the story and the experience of these disciples of Christ, it speaks to us in this. Every one of us faces storms in our lives, whether they are actual storms or whether they are metaphorical storms, but every one of us experiences them in our lifetime. And what this story tells us is that being a follower of Jesus Christ is no exemption. Now, for some you say, oh, of course. But others of you need to hear that, and you need to remind yourself of that periodically. Because there are storms in your life, either that you are in the midst of or that you are now recovering from, and the natural question in your mind is this. What did I do? Why did I deserve this? Why is God putting me through this? Those questions come from either an instinctive belief or a false teaching that is very common, even in evangelical churches, is that we are to expect our best life now, and when we signed up for Jesus, what we signed up for is comfort and for him to make sure that everything was smooth sailing for the rest of the way. But these were the followers of Jesus Christ. And they are in the midst of a storm. And it is a reminder to us that just because we are experiencing storms doesn't mean it's because it's a consequence of something that we have done wrong. In fact, in this particular situation, these disciples are experiencing the storm not because they were disobedient, but because they were obedient to Jesus Christ's call in their life, right? 
They could, have, they could have been totally safe and warm and dry had they told Jesus, forget you, we're staying here. We know this water better than you do. Or had they sailed a little ways and when they thought they were out of sight, ducked into some hidden cove someplace because they didn't want to cross the water. Had they been disobedient, they would have not faced this particular storm. And that speaks to us as well. Because so many of us assume that for God to be calling us to something, for us to determine that it's God who's calling us to something, must mean that the primary objective standard by which we are gauging means that it is safe and that I feel at peace about it. Isn't that the evangelical language? I have a peace. I have a peace about this. And it's not entirely wrong because the scriptures do speak about a peace and, and there's a promise of peace. One of the things we need to consider is though what the scriptures usually teach about us about having that peace is I have a peace that surpasses all understanding or a peace that doesn't make sense. Because when you add up all of the factors and then this is what I believe God is calling me to do, I still feel that I need to do it, but nobody, everybody else thinks I'm nuts. That part we kind of leave out. We've reduced it to as long as I feel fine about it, that's what God wants me to do. And if it's dangerous or would put me in a storm, well, then I'm exempt from it because clearly God wouldn't want me to do that. But the disciples here are the clear examples of Jesus is the one that shoved them out and that they were facing that storm because of their obedience in this circumstance. Not as a point of punishment, but as a part of this life. We need to realize that this, your favorite story, tells us that to follow Jesus is not a call necessarily to safety and always having comfort and peace, but sometimes it is quite dangerous. And in this life, whether normal or because we are following Jesus, we are sometimes called into the storms. We know this. Because most of us are very well aware of the stories of what's going on around the world uh, today and in many places where their cultures are hostile to the gospel. Stories are recorded in a book that's called Jesus Freaks by DC Talk. I think it's back on the market. It's available. It's a recording of Christians that are being martyred throughout the 20th century. It is uncomfortable and yet reaffirming reading or classically Fox's Book of Martyrs. Those are not odd, weird stories. They are ongoing. A friend of mine recently had an opportunity to go and to teach and minister to a underground church in a culture that is hostile to the gospel. And he was asked to teach, but before he had his opportunity to teach, what he did see is these believers who, I don't know if they've been found out or, or what, but the believing parents with their believing young children were about to send their children away or the parents were trusting with somebody else. And he said that several of them would grab their children and they hugged them, 12 and 13 years old. and said, I love you with all of my heart and I commit you to Jesus. And if I never see you again, be faithful. And then they asked my friend to speak and he said, you want me to speak to these people? I... I'm not worthy to be in their presence, much less be the one who's going to teach them anything. And this is going on all over the world, and we complain as Americans because we don't have the privileged position in the eyes of the media or the academic circles. Give me a break. 
Disciples in their faithfulness experience the storm. Storms are common to every one of us. And I watch this, look at the disciples, and I'm wondering what's going through their mind. And part of me wonders, <laughs> probably projecting, and the question saying, and where's God in all of this? Because they were all alone. Jesus sent them out, whether they were, you know, whether that was pointed out on the boat or not, I don't know. But they were very well aware they were out in the middle of the storm, and their Lord was not with them. Now, this wasn't the first storm. It was actually earlier that year they had been out in another storm, and Jesus was with them at the time, and then they got angry with him because he was asleep. And at that time, they cried out, Lord, don't you care? Jesus got up, kind of took a look and said, shut up to the storm, and it shut up, and then I I don't know if he went back to sleep. I don't remember the story that well uh, at this point, but uh, that's the way it ends in my imagination is that after he calmed it, he went back to sleep thinking, no big deal. But here, their Lord isn't even present so far as they know. Where is God in all of this? Now, after the first service, Molly came and told me that Caroline said, as soon as I said that rhetorical question, God's everywhere. So that's her answer, and that is true. And Matthew and Mark record that as well. Because while John just kind of deals with certain bullet point facts, Matthew and Mark record for us that while the disciples were struggling, Jesus, who had gone up on the hillside to pray, was watching them. He was fully aware of what was going on. He was seeing them entire way. Now, what happened when the storm came? Did he see him in the dark because of the moonlight before the storm came or lightning flashes? Or is it a, an indication of just his omniscience that he knows all things and sees all things? I don't know, and it could be every one of those things. But the reality is that when they were struggling, we are told that, the, that Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, was on the mountainside, fully aware and interceding. He was praying. He was interceding for them. And it's a beautiful picture of the reality for you and for me of what the scripture teaches about our Lord. No matter what circumstance you're in, no matter where you are, no matter what you may think, no matter how far you may think God is, he is always aware. And we are told that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, even now, interceding on your behalf. He expresses his care constantly. He is always present. And he comes. We look at the last part of this. We now move to the third, the sovereign Savior. And Jesus now shows up. We see it in verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. It's interesting. They see something coming, and we're told that they are frightened. Why are they frightened? Well, because they're four miles from the, co- from the shore, three miles from the shore, halfway. So just imagine, forget the James River Bridge, but you are in a rowboat in the middle of that when the winds start kicking up. Forget even a storm. I've been driving across, and periodically the waves are coming up and seem to be hitting on the sides of, of the road. I don't even want to drive, much less be in the water in a boat. But they were in the boat with uh, the same kind of distance from shore, in the mid- middle of that, from one place to another, And if I'm in a boat, I'm not expecting to see somebody come walking out. Now, there are some who look at this and say, no, Jesus wasn't really, he was on the shore. Well, that's a pretty neat reach that he's, it's a miracle in itself if he can reach them three miles out. Others say, well, he, it was shallow water and he was walking on rocks. Neat trick. Try that. We'll just go the narrow part, walking out from Jamestown across uh, here, that's probably only, what, mile and a half, two miles? Let's see how well that works. 
Jesus was walking on the water. The disciples were afraid. Why? Because they thought it was a ghost. Some commentators say they thought that it was what was known as a, a night spirit. Others said they figured it was a ghost of somebody who had drowned at sea. And that doesn't validate the idea of ghosts. All it tells us is that the disciples of that day were as predisposed to superstition as we are. But they did know this, nobody walks on the water, especially in the middle of a storm. Well, I don't know if especially. Nobody walks on water, and this was in the middle of a storm. <laughs> I haven't seen it otherwise either. Anyway, so um, and I think what this tells us is that Sometimes God shows up to us in ways that we don't immediately recognize. Maybe in the form of a person, maybe through his providence in a circumstance. Remember when I was in seminary, and for those of you who are not quite sure on how this works, in seminary, you know, grad school students, you know, how, much, how, how much money grad students make? Put a little lower there if you're in seminary. I was working five part-time jobs. I was a youth director at a church coaching football at a local prep school. I was doing development for the seminary, calling the rich alumni uh, and saying, cough up the cash so that the rest of us who are here now don't have to starve. That wasn't actually the pitch, but that was, the, that was my motive. Um, that, was what I, that was my job. Um, um, I was spiritual life director for Belhaven College, where Carolyn was a resident director, and then I would do odd jobs for wealthy people of First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi, that the seminary would coordinate. So, like painting decks and removing scales from things, and so all of that. But none of that paid much. And so, with the bills coming in, and we had a, a, a brand new baby, so Andrew was probably less than a year old, we had nothing. And yet, we still had, and so we didn't know where money was going to come from. And then, in the course of one week, we received two letters that, on the face of them themselves, just by the envelopes themselves, would be quite frightening. Because on the envelopes, both of them would indicate we owe somebody some money. One of them came from the University of Tennessee, and the other one came from American Express. We opened them up. Both of them were significant refunds for where I had overpaid years before. I had argued at the time that I'd paid them both at their times, different times, and they argued back, and they had the clout. So I paid them what they said I owed them years before. And I don't know where you went to school, but if you get money from the University of Tennessee, it's an act of, it's an act of God. Uh, and so, um, so imagine as we first get these envelopes, and you know, it's clear in the indication the offices these are coming from, they want our money, we don't have any, and they are coming. God came to us in the provision. Now, in one sense, it's, it's a great illustration. In another, it's lacking because it doesn't always come in the form of money. It's not always about money, but God met us in our difficulty in a way that we never were going to expect. As he arranged things providentially both through time and through people to meet our need that nobody could have known that we had or how it works out. And God does that in all of the lives in our story. He's aware, he's interceding, he shows up even if we don't recognize him at first, even if we are frightened by the way that he shows up. In fact, the truth of the matter is as if Jesus has never shown up in such a way that you are frightened, then you probably don't know him as well as you think you do. Because his awesomeness, his holiness, and his call on our lives can be sometimes very frightening. Jesus speaks to them and he says, it is I, do not be afraid. And one of the things we need to notice here first is first he identifies himself 
and then he, he says, don't be afraid. In other words, he doesn't just say, stop being afraid. And then once you get your act together, I will show up. He identifies himself first to give us reason to allow our fears to cease. And what is not captured in any of the English texts that I've read is Jesus' identification. While it is I or, you know, it's me, all of those are accurate. They are not specific. The Greek words that Jesus used to identify himself are as recorded were ego I me, which means literally I am. You get the significance here? Jesus was showing up to these people who were quite frightened, and it would have been nice just to know that it was Jesus. You know, it's me. But he assumes the covenant name of, the, of God. And he identifies himself first and foremost and says, I am. Therefore, don't be afraid. Jesus is reminding us in a very simple way. Essentially, he's saying, I'm the living and true God, the one who created everything, the master of everything. I got this. We need to recognize that this is recorded for us because Jesus is still the great I am. And John then records something that is interesting. He says in verse 21, they were glad to take him into the boat. No kidding. Um, immediately the boat was on land to which they were going. Immediately. Now, a number of scholars say, well, see, this is the second miracle within the miracle that seems to get overlooked. I'm not sure that I necessarily can agree with that. It's possible. But I think that Matthew and Mark might have recorded something very similar if that had been the case. What they say doesn't refute that idea, but it certainly doesn't support it. Others say, well, what this indicates is a truth, is that in God's presence, in fellowship and seeing him, time goes so quickly that it seemed as if it was as nothing. And that may be true as well. It's kind of a little syrupy for me, but that doesn't mean it's not true. And so I'm not sure exactly what John is getting to, but I do know that what he says is a reflection of the reality of the promise that you and I can experience. I think part of what John is communicating here, which is consistent with the other two gospel writers, is this. When Jesus got into the boat, their destination was certain. Immediately, as soon as he got in, everything changed. Not only did he calm the storm, but they were guaranteed to get where they were going. The same is true for you and for me. Because we are told that at the moment that we believe, the kingdom of God that is at hand begins to dwell within us. The salvation that Christ has given for us, the moment we believe, is given to us. It is as real as it could possibly be, although it is not as fulfilled as it can possibly be. Theologians refer to that as the now, but not yet. There's a number of ways that that's expressed. And so it is true as if it is completed. There's nothing more to be done. It is a guarantee that takes place immediately. And yet, however much time between that moment and that we come face to face with our God, our destination is certain because it's in his hands. And he's the one who is the sovereign I am. Now, I'm going to wrap it up this way. I stand amazed at what John writes. And this passage is, in every one of his expressions, a story of faith from beginning to end. But what amazes me about John's account, as opposed to the other two accounts, is not what he has recorded, but what he didn't record. 
I mean, there's some other significant things that the others record, well, at least that Matthew records. Like Peter walking on the water when they figured out that it was Jesus. When they finally figured it out, Peter blurts out, hey, Lord, can I come out and play? And Jesus says, come on. I mean, would John forget that? I don't know how many years are going to go by just because it didn't happen to him. I mean, if any of you went out in a boat and you're out in the middle of the water and one of your friends says, watch this, and he walks for a while on the water, I don't think you're going to forget it. So John didn't forget it, but John is so disciplined in his economy of words, a gift which clearly I don't have, but he is so disciplined and so focused because he's reminding us that this ultimately is not about the disciple and we get so fascinated with what Peter did because that's kind of cool. But it's all about Jesus. The fact that Peter had that experience is indication and metaphorical for our own lives of faith and failure at this back and forth. But the hope that is secured is never in somebody else's experience. It's always in the person of Jesus Christ who is the great I am. And Jesus, the whole launching of the, of, of, the, of the disciples and the dispersing of the crowds was because he wants us to know him through only the majestic power and authority that he is the one sent by the Father over and against everything that human beings would make him out to be. He is what he is. He is the I am and in him and in him alone do we have our hope and our security. For he alone is our ever-present help in times of trouble. He is our refuge and our salvation. May we turn our attention to him now, whether we're in the midst of a storm or not. And certainly at times the sailing is rough. Father, thank you for these words that you have given us through your servant John and pray that you would turn our attention to Jesus, not only in times that are difficult, but even in times that are delightful. For in him we find our full. In him we find our future. In him is all of our hope. To him be all glory and praise from the church, from every nation and tribe and tongue the sacrifice that Christ has made and the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray. Amen.